My name is Chris. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here, and so glad that you're here, and so glad that we get to be here together. I want to start today by telling you a story. So back when I was in grad school, uh, the, the, probably the single best part of my kind of educational experience was where I lived. So I, I think this is pretty common in most kind of institutions of higher education, but they were making an attempt to engender and create community and relationships in the places that we lived. But instead of living in kind of a more traditional dormitory environment, I lived in what uh, our school called an intentional community. So it was an apartment complex, and I just had, you know, a roommate. Like, that was fairly normal, except that there's always about 40 or 50 of us in this community, and four nights a week, we had a community meal together. And so one night during the week, you'd be on the team that helped cook and cook the meal and then clean up afterwards. But we ate together regularly. We would do a retreat together at least once a year. We had to have business meetings to make sure everybody got along and that sort of thing. But the three years that I spent in Pasadena in school living in that place, the opportunity to live in that spot, I think, shaped and changed me more than just about anything else I experienced in grad school. And it was such an interesting group because it was really mixed. You had a bunch of like 20-something knuckleheads living a very protracted adolescence like me. Um, and then you had grandparents. You had students and you had staff and you had people who were just kind of loosely affiliated with the school. There were families with kids there and me. And there was this one family in particular who I, I loved. They were the, the Price Fosters and the Price Fosters had four daughters all of them in elementary school or below. And their youngest daughter's name was Stella. And I, thinking back on it, I never knew how old Stella was. I think she had to have been like four. And she was awesome, right? So Stella had this like husky chuckle whenever she would laugh that it sounded like, like it was like a chain-smoking construction worker, not a four-year-old little girl, <laughs> which makes her even cuter, right? Like so she would laugh and she had lived her entire life in this community, surrounded by all of these kind of auxiliary aunts and uncles. And it showed that she had lived her entire life surrounded by adults who knew her and adored her. Because she would just wander into your apartment at any time of the day. So like, you know, we're in grad school, you do have homework to do, you'd be like reading, and then all of a sudden there's a four-year-old in the room, and you're like, where did you come from, Stella? Um, and so her parents had to have a talk with her. And they said, you know, Stella, you can't just walk into, I know we all live near each other, but this isn't all your house. Um, and so then the rule was she couldn't just come in. And they actually asked her not to knock on doors. And so what she would do, you got to imagine this is Pasadena, so the weather's pretty nice. So uh, we all had screen doors, but our front doors were always open. <laughs> and you'd look up, and she would do this quietly. She'd sneak up and then just press her face into the screen door. And you'd look up, and here'd be this, like, squished four-year-old face looking at you. And you'd be like, oh, hi, Stella, would you like to come in? And then she would just come in. Um, she was awesome. We ate a lot of our meals outdoors, and we'd sit on these picnic tables, and so we're on benches. And Stella was always, like, climbing on laps, like, like I, don't think she, I don't think her butt ever touched wood, you know? Um, and, but these other things would happen where all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you would see something flying through the air. And you'd realize that Stella had just launched herself off a table at you without you knowing it. So the amount of times I watch people like twist uncomfortably and catch a flying four-year-old in a way that probably we all have enduring damage to our lumbar regions, like that happened a lot. But 
Here's why I tell you that story. I think it's amazing that she was able to do that because she always trusted that there is somebody here with arms strong enough to catch me, and I can trust these people. She lived fearlessly because she knew there is somebody who will catch me. And we're going to talk about today what it might look like to live our lives with that kind of trust and fearlessness. So you say a prayer with me real quick. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather in this room. Um, God, we don't, we don't come to church to get merit badges or earn extra credit, Lord. Um, we don't get any special privilege because we happen to be in this room. God, we come because it's an opportunity for whatever that dividing wall between heaven and earth is to grow thin and to have an experience with you that we might be changed by it. So God, as we look forward to the second half of this overall service, I pray for each of us that we would be open to that contact, that we would have an experience of you, and that we would leave today different because we were here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you are um, among those in the room who you're here for the first time, you picked a good week because we are starting a brand new series uh, this week called Her Story. So for the next few weeks, every time you come in, you're going to hear somebody up here telling you the story of an often overlooked or little known, or little known woman from the Old Testament. So uh, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, it's generally divided into two sections. The first one is called the Old Testament. It is much bigger. It is much older. It is much harder to understand. And as a result, fewer people read it. Um, so we're going to dive into some of these stories because there is some unplumbed depths. There is some gold to be uncovered here, and there are some amazing stories for us to find. Uh, I was here last week, and uh, Maurice, another one of our pastors, was teaching, um, and he said something at the beginning of a sermon that I haven't been able to get out of my head all week, and it was like not the main point of the sermon, but sometimes it works that way, right? He said something, and it has just been stuck there. This is what he said. He said, who I like, I become. Who I like, I become. In his context, he was talking about uh, watching professional wrestling as a kid and then acting it out with his brother and cousins, and it'd be like, I'm Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I'm John Cena. And I, all I could think, well, honestly, all I could think in that moment was, your wrestlers are so much worse than when I was a kid. We had way cooler wrestlers. There's this dude, Coco Beware. He carried, like, the biggest bird I've ever seen. Why? I don't know. What's a bird going to do in a wrestling match? Not much. Uh, another dude brought a snake. There are these guys, the Bushwhackers. They were Australian, and they had, um, they had my haircut, and they would walk in like this, and then they'd lick each other's heads right before they fought, because that's how you intimidate an opponent. Uh, another dude, the ultimate warrior, he would sprint always. He was never not sprinting. From the back, he'd sprint all the way down there, and he was covered in tattered neon fabric. And I, I have to imagine there was the same amount of cocaine in his sweat as salt in the ocean. Like, I mean, this dude was amped. Like, those were professional wrestlers. All of that is a horrific digression that I probably should have cut, but I just couldn't help it. Um, what Maurice said was, who I like, I become. He and his brother, they would act out their favorite characters when they'd be wrestling in their rooms. Because when we see someone, it can change in us how we imagine our own future, what we can become. It's really important that we have a full slate of representations of what 
the good life can be. And all too often in churches today and in churches in the past, the focus has been largely on men. But I'm the father of two daughters, and they're awesome. And they can do anything. And they need examples in their life of people like them who did amazing things. And so for the next several weeks, you're going to hear a lot of fantastic stories that have always been in our Bibles, but that have often been overlooked, and we've missed out because of that. So we're going to talk today about a woman named Deborah. And Deborah is like one of the, like, the baddest ladies in the whole Bible, and it's not just because she was proactively named after my mother. So here's a little uh, background on Deborah. She, uh, we find her story in a book in the Bible called the Book of Judges. Now, the Book of Judges tells us about a certain period in the history of the people of Israel. Deborah lived about 200 years after the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt. And so if you recall that story at all, they are, uh, all of the, people, the Hebrew people are living in slavery in Egypt, and then Charleston Heston comes, and he leads them out, and he goes like this, and the Red Sea parts, and they walk through, and then he goes like this, and then it falls in, and all the bad guys drown, right? So it's about 200 years after that. That's when we get Deborah's story. And at this time, uh, they are living in a place called the Promised Land, a place that they had been told would be a land flowing with milk and honey, which is funny poetic imagery because the desert is hot, and if there's that much milk, it doesn't smell good. But they're saying this is the place where you're going to live the good life. You're going to thrive in this spot. And there's no monarchy yet, right? The Israel does not have royalty at this point. There's no king. There's no queen. There's no centralized authority or leadership. They live very tribal nomadic agricultural lives. And occasionally, a crisis would occur. Generally, it comes in the form of oppression coming from a military force from the outside. And in those moments, they would cry out to God, and God would raise up a deliverer. And those people are called judges. So it says the book of Judges, that's the word that refers to these people who would lead Israel out of the oppression that they were in. Now, when you read the book, it follows a very discernible pattern. And this is what it is. The people are living in the land, and it will say, and the land had peace. There was peace or rest in the land. And then it will say, the people began to stray away from God. They began to pursue other gods. They dabbled in what the, uh, the Old Testament will call idolatry. And when that happens, oppression follows afterwards. And the people will then just suffer in that place under oppression for quite a while before they remember we have a god who saved us from egypt perhaps god will save us from this situation as well and so they will cry out to god god will raise up a deliverer a new judge who will find victory over the oppressive force and then it will say again and then the land had peace for x amount of years and then it will say and then the people did what was evil in the sight of god um, and I just got to say that that pattern of continually like falling back into the same habits, ruts, and patterns that have been destructive in my life in the past that I then fall into again is totally something that I cannot relate to at all. So here is Deborah's time to be the deliverer. This starts in Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and it reads like this. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. 
So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, so we cover a lot of ground in those three verses. Multiple decades transpire. So first it says Ehud. Ehud was the previous um, judge. And at the end of his story, it will tell you that the, the land had peace for 80 years after Ehud. So they had gotten back on the right track. They were doing it right. 80 years passes. And then it says, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't actually specify right in there exactly what they did, but that tends to be a technical term throughout the book speaking of idolatry, right? They have ceased living exclusively in this relationship with God in the land they were given where they are intended to thrive and have started to pursue other things. They have done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we're going to touch on that idea of idolatry later. But I want to point out, and then it says that, that Sisera, this general, the reason he was able to so ruthlessly oppress them for so long is because he had 900 iron chariots. And what we had to understand, because like, you know, chariot isn't super helpful in like a battle now, but this is an insurmountable technological advantage. What you actually have here is an early Iron Age society with technology that allows them to oppress this nomadic agrarian society. Like 900 iron chariots is indefeatable. It is something that they could never, ever, ever hope to overcome. And because of that, they have been oppressed for so long. So long, 20 years, right? It says 20 years of ruthless oppression before the people finally cry out to God. And I relate to that. I'm real good at just, you know, I'll just continue to suffer. It'll, it'll work itself out, you know. Um, on June 11th, a little over a month ago, I hurt my left foot like really bad. And I made sure that I waited at least 30 days of every time my left foot touched the ground wincing and like limping around of having to sit all day every day before I did anything about it. My, my lovely patient wife kept being like very gently, you know, Chris, maybe... I don't know, maybe you should go see someone about that. I'd be like, no, it'll be fine. It'll work itself out. It's going to be good. I'm a big believer that if you leave a problem alone long enough, it'll solve itself. Or it'll become normal, and then it's not a problem anymore. Um, I relate. I relate to people who wait way too long to try to find a solution to their problem. But eventually Israel does, right? They eventually they cry out. They're in a terrible spot. They ask for help. Enter Deborah. This is verse 4 and on. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. 
Okay, a couple things to notice here. One, Deborah is called a prophet and a judge. There are several things that are distinctive about Deborah amongst all of the other judges in the book of Judges. Among them, she is the only one who is already a major spiritual and political leader before she is called to be the deliverer of Israel. She's the first one. She will be the only one to have that distinction. She has another distinction. Can, can anybody guess what it might be? She's a woman. That's right. She is our lone female judge um, in all of that time. She lived in a society that was highly uh, patriarchal where there often was not space for a woman. And so it's very interesting that she is the only one. She actually sat in a position of authority and leadership prior to being called into deliverance. Um, so she's in this seat. She sits under the palm of Deborah and is ju offering judgments to Israel. And then she summons Barak. That's a big deal. So Barak's like the five-star general. He is the, the, the highest military leader amongst their people. And not only does she presume to summon him, but he shows up right on time. It's not strange to him that this woman would have the authority to call me. He's not reticent. He is not resistant. He just comes because he understands that is what he needs to do. It speaks deeply to the authority that she held. This is a world in which women did not beckon men. Deborah does. And then verse 8, this is like uh, more ink has been spilled over verse 8 than any other part of, of this particular story in Judges, where, where Barak says, okay, I'll go, but only if you come too. I'm only going if you come too. So um, I, I like to read what are called commentaries, and these are kind of like scholarly discussions of parts of the Bible. And I read a bunch leading up to this, and what I found really interesting is there were some themes that kept popping up in them. They would say things like, ah, Barak is being weak and afraid here when he says, I'm only going if you come too. There are some that will say that, oh, what Barak is doing is asking her to come so that he has a scapegoat, that if this fails, he can say, well, it's because I got bad advice from a woman. This is, this is in the books, not my words, yours, these are mine. Some of them will go so far as to say that Barak was clearly the first choice to be the judge, but that, that he failed or in his weakness he wouldn't do it. So only then did God have to go and use Deborah to finally get the point across that it was time to find deliverance from this particular problem. And, and like, um, there are commentators who will even use language saying, like, well, there were just no real men left in Israel. So then God had to presume to use a woman to do this. It's important at this point to note, none of that is in the biblical text. That is all a cultural lens that has been read back into it. Because I think there's a lot more going on in this story than that. But you need to understand something about the structure of the book. So the book of Judges um, gets worse and worse and worse. Like it starts off and like they're in trouble and then the judge is a good person and they, they find deliverance and things are okay. And as the story goes on, these judges, I mean, they are a train wreck. It gets awful. There was a point when I was in grad school to be a pastor where I thought, maybe I don't want to be a Christian anymore. And it's because I read Judges. Um, it gets awful at the end. And if you are reading it from the idea like this is what God wanted, this is the example 
that we're supposed to follow, um, you shouldn't come here anymore if you're reading it that way. But that's not what it is. When we take the whole book, what we see is a de-evolution of what leadership looks like as it gets further and further from the heart of God. There's this persistent theme when you read the whole book where you see that what God is saying is that what we need in this situation is not somebody's individual strength or skill. What you need is closeness to me. You need, we need God's presence, not a human savior to come take us through the things that oppress us. But here at the front end of the book, this is, this is Judges chapter 4, things haven't gotten bad yet. This is one of the best glimpses of how this is supposed to work, what it really could be like. See, in this sort of like warlike, patriarchal society, the expectation is that Barak is going to come in and lead very strongly and that he is going to seek glory for himself. That's what you would expect in this warlike, patriarchal society. And what I found is that in many ways, it's, it's what I found in the scholarly opinion today. But see, God's message is all you need is me. That's God's message. I am, I am what you need here. The trouble started when you got far from me. And the trouble subsides when you draw near again. See, I see something amazing in what Barak does here. Because he knows that God chose Deborah, that God speaks through Deborah. She speaks in first person when she speaks for God. In this story, she is the representation of the divine presence, and he says, I'm not going anywhere without you. See, that's not weakness. I think that that kind of humility requires strength. Hubris is the child of weakness, not humility. So here's what I love about this story. Even today, when I read about it, the discussion centers on gender and expectations based upon that gender, and it judges the characters in this harshly because they don't conform to what was expected. See, Barack doesn't show up as this, like, macho dude who tries to dismiss this woman. It, the text doesn't assume that he must be wrong because he's not that kind of guy. It doesn't assume that because Deborah takes the lead, it must have been because a man wouldn't do it. The text tells a story very different if, if we can remove the lens of our culture from it. Because you have to know, things are actually much more difficult and precarious for Deborah than we probably imagine. This was not a society where women were safe in general. And yet this woman, because God had called her, doesn't let any of those things stop her. She doesn't let anything get in the way of hearing God's voice and responding courageously to it. I think that is amazing. She lives fully and freely into everything God gifted her to be and called her to do. That is the kind of role model that I want for my daughters. But it's more than that. That's the kind of role model I want for me. That's the sort of thing that, that I need to learn from. God speaks, and her only response, courageous obedience. Can you think about that? Like she's just sitting under her tree, just chilling out, and then she summons a five-star general. She tells him, this is 
everything you need to know in the way of military strategy and personnel, and then she herself marches off into battle against an insurmountable enemy with a technological advantage so great that it cannot possibly be defeated. This would be like if, like, when you finish sipping your chai right now, you picked up your phone, called Zelensky, said, this is how we're pushing Russia out of Ukraine, and I'll be there tomorrow to lead the charge. You ready to do that? I'm not. That's awesome. She lives free from the control of fear because she knows what God told her, and she believes that God can be trusted. I think she's like Stella jumping off a picnic table. She's free to follow where God has gone because she knows there is somebody with arms stronger than me who will catch me. And so she just does it. She goes. That impresses me. See, Judges 4, on the surface level, is a story about the nomadic people of Israel finding oppression from a Canaanite king named Jabin. What I think is really cool is that before the battle is fought, Deborah is already free. And I wish I could do that. I wish I could be like that. I admire people who can just go. Um, if you've been around here for a while, you know that like another one of our teaching pastors, Aisha, has recently announced that she's stepping down from her staff from our staff because God has called her into something new, and she doesn't know exactly what that's going to be like, but she's going because she believes God said so, and I trust God. I admire that and that, but I don't relate. I don't. I, I relate to all those other people in Israel who for 20 years of ruthless oppression put their heads down and just kept walking forward. Maybe tomorrow will be better. I guess I'll just do this again. Those, those are my people. I, uh, when I prepare for a sermon, I like to go to coffee shops, and I, I have some favorites around, and I did a lot of the work for this sermon in the E. Simpson Coffee Company in Lafayette. It's a great coffee shop. I encourage you to check it out sometime. Fantastic outdoor space, good main level, decent product, but then upstairs, they have an upstairs seating area. It's a great place to write a sermon. So I'm up there, but when I was preparing for this, something happened that had never, never happened up there before. There was a dude playing acoustic guitar and singing upstairs. They had like an artist up there, and it was awesome because he was kind of playing quietly, singing quietly. Um, it was amazing. So I'm sitting there, and I kind of, I've worked out this idea that I, I'm, I'm trying to engage with, wow, I'm so impressed with the way that Deborah just goes. Like there's no like hemming and hawing, like she just does it and, and how I don't do that. And I'm trying to think of what's a story in my own life, like how, how can I apply this? Because you know, I don't want to read the Bible just to get like Bible quiz points. I want to read the Bible to help me grow. And then the guy playing guitar, he starts playing this song by uh, an old country western artist named Don Williams. Anybody know Don Williams? Yeah, I didn't think so. Oh, no, one. One silver head shaking. That's about right. Yeah. Um, so the guy starts playing a song called Good Old Boys Like Me by Don Williams. And uh, this is like one of the stories where my Missouri really comes out. Um, my dad loved Don Williams, so I know his whole collection. And I can actually, I can still visualize, my dad had this like beat up old work truck and there, it had cassettes, you know, like tapes, and he had Don Williams' greatest hits, and we would listen to that all the time. So um, 
I find myself, I kind of put my journal down, and I'm singing under my breath, and, um, and I start to think about my dad. But see, my dad's been dead for 15 years, and as often happens when I reminisce about him, I can't help but start thinking about the things that went unsaid between he and I while he was still alive and the things that I'll never get the chance to say or hear. And I know this is the case for most of us, that you know, our, our relationships with parents can be complicated. A lot of the things I still carry, my parents separated and ultimately divorced when I was 14. And there was a lot of grief and pain and anger that I never actually had the courage to work through with my dad. And so now I'll find myself occasionally in a coffee shop and a song will make me think. And I'll wonder, you know, what could the last 10 years of life that I had with my dad have been like? Had I been brave enough to actually say what needed to be said, to actually work through these things that I carried and these things that I'll never have a chance now to deal with? See, I wasn't, I wasn't brave enough to fight that battle, but I knew I needed to. And there are lots of things, right? That, those, what I carried in me, in my relation, one of the most important relationships that I'll ever have with my father, it oppressed me. And there are lots of things that can oppress us. There are, are lots of things that can hold on to us. For me, it generally comes down to fear. That is the great oppressive force in my life, and it took a lot of therapy to find that out. Um, I started seeing a therapist because I was dealing with some pretty intense anxiety, mostly around work and work performance. And, and, and Polly, my therapist, she would always, you know, let's, let's go one layer beneath that. Why do you think that? And we keep going. And then she, eventually we'd go, and, and then she would say this every time. She'd say, sad, angry, afraid. At the bottom of it, are you sad, are you angry, are you afraid? And for me, I was always afraid. It could be afraid of conflict, afraid of the future, afraid of failure, that's a big one for me. Um, afraid of disappointing people. It's one of the great things that, that, that holds me back in life. For, for Israel in this story, it was situational. There was an actual Canaanite king named Jabin. I don't know, for us in this room, I'll bet the oppressive forces that we carry in our lives take a different form in each of our lives, and it could be addiction, it could be debt, it could be the loss of a job, divorce, anxiety, depression, other sources of mental illness, it could be disease. There, it feels sometimes uh, futile to try to like imagine what, what for every person in this room, but I'll bet for all of us we know, gosh, there's something that looms. It oppresses me. There's a battle that needs to be fought, but I don't want to fight it. I don't want to deal with it. And I think maybe the most important lesson we can learn from here is that in each of those things, see, for every judge through the whole book, but it's key here in Deborah's story too, the first thing that happens that sparks change is the people of Israel cry out for help. That we have a God who has invited us to ask for help, 
to say, this hurts, God. I'm afraid of this. Help. God, this is an insurmountable enemy. I can never overcome it. It can't get better. Help. We have this invitation to cry out for help. You know, if you ever sit down and read through the whole book of Judges, you're going to find it depressing. Because uh, there's a sense of futility, because the same thing keeps happening over and over. It's this constant cycle of like political deliverance followed by renewed oppression. It happens again and again and again, and the situations get worse and worse and worse, and it's because they never address the root cause of the problem. They get rid of the symptom, but they never address the cause. Here's what it is. See, 200 years earlier, God had led these people out of Egypt. He had miraculously delivered them, and he had put them in the promised land, but he had done it for a reason. They had been put in that place, and this was their job. Live a great life. Thrive. Live in relationship with me and live your best life. And it's going to be so great that the people around you are going to see it, and they're going to be curious, and they're going to want it. And it's going to draw people back. From the beginning, God's plan was always never to exclude people, but to say, those of you who have gone far from me, I'm going to put an example out there of what the best life is, and I hope it will draw you back because I created you and I love you. That was Israel's job. Thrive. Live amazingly in this land in relationship with me, and the land will have peace. And you will have peace. But over and over again, other gods crept into their hearts. At first, those gods had names like Baal and Anoth. For the judges after Deborah, the, God that, the, the other god that creeps into their life is going to be self. They're going to be called to deliver others, but they're going to look for their own glory, their own self-advancement. For me, comfort, security, control, the desire to be liked, to please everybody, these are the things that creep into my heart and take a center position. And it can be confused because I, you know, I never like fully move God out of the picture. I'm never like, you know what, God, move over. Comfort's my new God. I, I, it's, not, it's not like that. But what I do is I invite these other forces into the picture to give God a little company. And then I end up with all of these different voices in my head. All of these whispers telling me what to do, where to go, how to act. These whispers that say, hey, 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 do this. You'll make more money. And then you'll finally feel safe. You won't be afraid anymore. Or they'll say, hey, 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 do, do that. And then people will like you. And if everyone likes you, then you're okay. Then you have value and worth. They'll say, hey, 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 just... Just keep going. I know it hurts. I know you don't like it, but just keep going. Nobody likes a whiner. Just go. And I have all of these whispers, all of these things, and it gets so confusing and it gets debilitating and immobilizing, and I can no longer hear the voice of God. It leads me away. You know why I think Deborah is so great? She only listened to one voice. She only listened to one voice. And I, I think that's the secret sauce. When we listen for God's voice, 
when we have done the, the work in ourselves to silence all of those other voices, it is a whole lot easier to find the courage to act, to go, to do. And listen, it's not easy. Like, I'm, I'm not getting up here saying, oh, just listen to God's voice and then you're okay. It's hard, it's difficult. And all the best things in life are. It's hard, but it can be done. And so here's one way we can do it, and we're about to all do it together. So you're going to get a chance to put it into action. And one of the ways that we can seek to silence the other voices and to find God's voice is through song. Because there is a way that art can powerfully work to cut through all the noise in our brains and reshape our hearts. So this last song that we're about to sing, we're going to say the phrase, Great are you, Lord, a lot. And so listen, I, you know, we call this worship, if you're like here for the first time, if you haven't been around church, it can seem like Christian karaoke. You're like, what? Nobody, there's no other segment of society where we all get together and we sing like this. But here's why we do it. Because when we do, it imprints things in our spirit, in our soul, in our heart. The life with God is not lived solely in our head. It is lived in every part of us. And so uh, for those of you who've been around church for a long time, you get this, man, I, I, do, I would encourage you today to not just be thinking, do I like the music? Is it making me feel good? But to think about these words and to then be, be projecting greatness onto God because you'll be changed by that. And if like coming to church isn't like your normal thing, if you're just tuning in, then, then here's what I would say, like, just read the words, think about them. Because as we begin to understand that there may just be a God in this universe who is that great, who is above and beyond and over all things, that just might be the first step that you need to start cutting out one of those voices and having the courage to take the step forward that you need in your life. So if you all would go ahead and stand up with me right now, I'm gonna pray and we'll sing this last song. Lord, as we sing this song, I pray that you would change us. God, help us to stifle the other voices that hold so much control in our lives and to recognize how much greater you are than all the things we fear. God, for each of us in this room, I pray that you would help us to experience the freedom that you give from the things that oppress us so that we can live fully in the promised land. It's in your name we pray. Amen.